to see these young people here tonight. Would you say amen? Amen. amen. Do you hear that? So young people, if you are glad to see these old people here tonight, would you say amen? Hey. so glad you're here. You are a fine-looking group of young people. And I'm happy UBC is here tonight. They're going to sing for us a little later. And I'm happy all the old people are here. I'm an old people man. But it's just a high honor for you to support our youth revival tonight. And young people, I'm thrilled beyond measure that you're here. I want... So if you need to grab a songbook, you can. It's the Sing to the Lord songbook. It's song number 468. I want us to stand. You know, here's, here's my hope uh, for this weekend. We're, we're all going to make choices this weekend, right? One way or another, we're all going to make choices. I hope that God will help us make the right choices. And so I want to start tonight by singing, I have decided to follow Jesus, because that's my hope for you, that you will decide to follow Jesus. And then, you, 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 some of you won't even have to turn the page, but we're just going to do a key change and go right into I Will Serve Thee Because I Love Thee. And uh, let's sing these two great songs together, shall we? Old people, help us out. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have
that God will have his way. And you know what I want for all of us? I want us to just obey him tonight. Amen. Isn't that a great thing to do? Just whatever he tells us to do, I hope we'll be willing to do it. And some are sick. My family can't be here tonight. Miss Ellie and Mr. Ethan are passing the bug back and forth quicker than you can say jackrabbit. It's no fun. Um, so they can't be here tonight. I just, I don't want to get it. I'm going to sleep out of my car tonight. So <laughs> but others are fighting sickness, and it's been a terrible. There's a young Caden. There's a young boy. Oh, the brother of, uh, yes. And, and he's been really, really sick, and we need to pray for him tonight. Others are fighting real bad sickness. So let's pray that God will touch them. Let's pray that God will, will help us tomorrow. We're hoping to have a big day. If you're a young person, you're here tomorrow, we're going to feed you over in the school. A special dinner planned just for you. So any pastors here tonight? Yeah, I'm proselyting your kids right now. So, um, so we hope you're planning to join us. And uh, we want God to help our evangelists. Don't we? Didn't he do a good job last night? Amen. God helped Paul Stepper, my dear friend, and I'm so glad he's here. And so I just believe God has great things in store for us if we'll just obey him. And I'm, uh, I feel old tonight. Uh, one of my old college buddies is a fellow named Dan Clements. And his son is now, have you graduated yet, Clayton? Are you getting junior? You're a senior? You're a junior. So his son is a junior in college, which makes us both very, very old. So, uh, Clayton, I want you to come lead us in prayer. Would that be okay? Clayton is kind of in charge of the group tonight. And uh, after the service, he's going to organize a bunch of games for y'all. He and the rest of the UBC clan going to organize a bunch of games for y'all. And you're going to have a really good time. And I forgot my tennis shoes. Please don't tell my wife that I'm going to play without my tennis shoes, okay? Clayton, you pray for us. Pray for this, sir. I have a spare pair in my trunk if you need them. Okay. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, we praise you for your many blessings. We thank you for the fact that we can come before you, your throne of grace, and that we can bring anything that, any problems that we have, any questions that we have, and we know that you are faithful to answer those. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, to us. Lord, you've brought us this far, and you're going to take us the rest of the way. We serve you, Lord. Help us to serve you the fullest of our ability. Help us to be open to what you would have us to do. Open to be what you would have us to be, dear Heavenly Father. Lord, we have loved ones here this evening. We have loved ones that are unsaved. And we ask that you would just go to them, Lord, and, and put a thumb of conviction in their back, Lord. Use us as a, as a tool. Use us, Lord, to, um, to be a witness. Lord, I, we have those that we have loved ones. We have friends who are uh, under physical ailments. They're sick. Lord, we ask that you would just touch them if you see fit. There are those here this evening that need you. There are those here this evening that are looking for something, and they are looking in all the wrong places. But the reality is it's not until they look at your feet and they look to you to be their center of their joy that they'll find true peace. Lord, I ask that you would just uh, use Paul's step of this evening, Lord, to, to bring the message that you laid on his heart. And help us to be open to what you would have for us to do this evening. In your precious, holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God bless you. Well, as I already said, we are extremely excited and honored that Union Bible College be here tonight. And their president is a friend of mine and a friend of our church. 
we worked it out so we could have a roof here tonight for you to see. So I don't know if it's the quartet or the mix or whatever it is, y'all come sing for us, okay? The Lord bless them as they sing tonight.
anything but good music at Independent Nazarene, right? That was good, y'all. Let's see, Ben, you come from a house where there's about 26 kids, right? 27. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Enjoy that same man. Amen. We're going to take an offering at this time. Thank you so much for, for how you've been giving uh, in this youth revival. Uh, it is your giving, now I'm talking to the old people, that makes it possible for us to have youth revival. And you've just gone above and beyond uh, in your giving tonight, and I say thank you from the bottom of my heart. So the Lord bless you tonight as you give. I have a dear friend that's here, and he's going to freak out that I'm going to call on him to pray. But my friend Daryl Gardner is here tonight. Daryl, would you stand and pray for the offering? Lord Jesus, we are thankful, Lord, for this good day. Would you reach out and would you bless this offering and use it to his In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you from, from uh, 
churches in the area who came and supported us tonight. And, and from the bottom of my heart, thank you. That means a lot to us. That means a lot to Independent Nazarene that you would Amen. do that. And um, you know, we got people who came all the way from Frankfurt. You know, that's quite a drive from Southeastern Avenue. That's not so far. <laughs> uh, we have people came from Franklin and Greensburg and um, Columbus. You know, see, I'm going to miss somebody. Um, somebody's going to get offended, so I'm going to shut up right now. So, Noblesville, see, I can't help myself. Um, but just Westville, of course. But thank you. Thank you for being here. And thank you, Union Bible College. The Lord bless you all as you come and sing for us again.
Praise his name. Young people, I can personally testify to you tonight. I got saved when I was eight years old. The Lord called me to preach when I was nine. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. There's one thing I've never been sorry for. I've never been sorry. I said yes to Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Yes. Amen. And I'm 50 years old now. I've never been sorry. You won't be either. I promise you. Did you enjoy Paul Stetler's preaching last night? Yes. Oh, yeah. God bless you, my friend. Good singing. Thank you to you UBC students for wonderful singing and good to see some other UBC students sitting right up here in the front and wonderful to see all of these other young people that are here. What a fantastic group of youth this is. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's inspiring when I see a group of young people this size. So many churches, not that the young people themselves are big, it's the size of the group of young people. <laughs> Just wanted to clarify that. Anyhow, <laughs> go to a lot of churches where there are only white heads, and there's nothing wrong with old saints. I love the old saints. And I'm starting to get a few gray hairs of my own here, and it's starting to tell on me, although I'm not near as old as your pastor. <laughs> still in my third decade. Well, I'm not my third decade. I guess I, I, I'm still in my 30s. Uh, I'm hanging on by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> I've got a little over a month left to be able to say that. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, I love to come to a church where there's a nice blend and where there's some wonderful uh, young people, especially sitting right up in the front and watching it participate in the service, seeing you worship the Lord. That's inspiring. You're a blessed people. And I know some of them have come from other places. And what a fantastic crowd this is, by the way. Um, but it's just good to see this nice collection of young people up here in the front. It's good to have some of my family here. My sister is here and her husband and, and uh, their little boy. Oh, my goodness, little Max. She kept him awake last night. I stayed at their house. She kept him awake so that he could see Apple Paul. That's what he calls me. He couldn't, I don't know if he's referring to my shape or my complexion or what, but uh, he can't say uncle, so he says Apple Paul. And uh, it's good to have two of my cousins here. Uh, Brent and Denise are here, and then Kenny and Elizabeth. Of course, they are on pastoral staff over at Southeastern, and it's so good to have them. They're beautiful children, and uh, oh my, good to be with family, but good to be with all of you. Also, I have some other family here. My wife's sweet grandparents are here. The Waldens are back there, and I, I sure love to see them walk in. I, I have to say this. I was teasing Sister Walden because she has that lovely black hair, and she doesn't do a thing to it. That's honest-to-goodness black hair, and... Uh, she, she messaged me the other day and she said, our furnace has gone out. And then she messaged me a little later the next day and she said, I'm happy to report that the furnace man came and our furnace is fixed. And I said, well, I'm sure glad to hear that because I'd hate to see that beautiful black hair become frosted. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
She loves me enough to let her let me tease her like that. <laughs> oh my. But it's great to be among family and it's great to be among friends. And I just feel right at home here at, at Beach Grove. Been coming here for a long time. And I just feel right at home amongst all of you and amongst you, you Hoosiers. <laughs> I wasn't born in Indiana, but I was born just over the line in Ohio. And uh, my grandpa was from Indiana, so that's where the Stetlers really hail from. And so I feel right at home here. And I feel at home in God's presence. Don't you? Oh, my. <laughs> I just love Jesus tonight. Don't you? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. He was talking about not being sorry that he turned his life over to Jesus. And I, I tell you <laughs> what that song says. I don't know what I would do. If the Lord wasn't walking by my side. Amen. Now that's an up-tempo little gospel song that we may think of being kind of lighthearted, but I wasn't taking it lighthearted tonight, my friends. Yeah. I can say that with deep sincerity. I don't know what I would do without Jesus. I truly don't. He has been the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's been so far better to me than I deserve. I just want to thank him tonight. I just want to go on record tonight that I thank him. And I also want to confess right up front, just like I did last night, but even more so tonight. I don't deserve to be up here. I'm not qualified to stand here. I'm not qualified to share God's word with you tonight. It's an awesome responsibility and I take it deadly serious because every person that's here tonight is an eternity bound individual. And this is another opportunity for you to draw near to God. And I take that seriously. Every one of you is going to hear one of two things when you stand before God. Well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me. And by God's grace, I want to be among those who hear well done, good and faithful servant. And I want every one of you here tonight to hear those words as well. And part of what will determine which phrase you hear in that all-important moment of judgment will be what you do with the message that is shared this evening. Not because it's me preaching. <laughs> if anything, that's the weak aspect. <laughs> but we're preaching God's word. And we're invoking his holy presence to come and enliven his word and minister his word to your hearts. And that's what makes it deadly serious, friends. That's what makes it eternal business that we're up to tonight. So saints, I would ask that you would pray for me tonight. I pray that you would ask or ask that you would pray that God would flow through me and make his word be quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword so that every one of us would become face-to-face -face with the claims of Jesus Christ, face-to-face -face with his lordship, his right to rule and reign over our hearts and our lives. And with the Lord's help, We'll see eternal business done tonight. Amen? Amen. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 32. We're going to break into the story. Jacob is running. <laughs> He's running scared. He's scared of his brother Esau. And he's finally facing up to the consequences of some very bad choices that he's made over the course of his life. And we're going to break right into the story with verse 22. 
Genesis chapter 32. We're going to start reading at verse 22. And it says, And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons, and he passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and he sent them over the brook and sent them over that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone, separated from his family, separated from all that he owned. And there he wrestled with the man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he, that is Jacob, said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And then he, that is the stranger, said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him, and he said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. I want us to pray together, and I'm going to ask Brother Don Bates Sr., if you would, to stand where you are and pray over this message tonight. Father God, we're in the presence of the Holy God. We're thankful to you, Lord God, for the false stepper we pray tonight for that special something that only comes from the wonderful God. And I pray you'll settle down and bless him and anoint him, we pray, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to do something tonight that I don't normally do, but I feel like God wants me to do it. And that is I'm going to preach you a brand new sermon that I've never preached before. And I wrote it out on this little yellow piece of notebook paper. <laughs> but I trust that this is what God wanted me to share with you tonight. You remember this story, don't you? <laughs> Twins were born. Is there anyone here tonight who is a twin? Anybody? Oh, yes. I see at least two hands. That's great. Twins were born. What a joy for Isaac and Rebecca to give birth to twins. Now, in those days, you have to remember that they didn't have the blessings that we as United States citizens have. They didn't have a constitution. They didn't have the rights of citizenship that we have. They didn't have a judicial system. They didn't have the rule of law. They didn't have armies that defended their freedom. They didn't have law enforcement that protected their home and their family and their assets. In those days, 
It was every man for himself. It was tribalism. Your family had to look out for its own welfare. And so it was important to have sons. It was important to have strong sons, able-bodied sons who could work and provide, who could defend, who could manage, who could manage the affairs of the family and protect the assets and the livelihood and the flocks and the pastures and the children of the family. So Isaac was receiving not only the blessing of his firstborn son, he was receiving a double blessing from God's hand. Two healthy boys. Now you've got to understand something about the culture of that day. In those days, they took the naming of a child very seriously. Because in that culture, your name sort of defined who you were. Now you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? We may name our child whatever we jolly well please. And it may not be based upon some trait that we discern in that child that we think is going to characterize their life that is yet to come. But still, our name sort of defines us, doesn't it? When you hear the name Paul Stetler, if you know me at all, you have a certain idea about who I am. There's something encapsulated in those two words, a history, a, a personality, a character sketch. And when that name is said, it brings a whole picture of a person to your mind. There may be a name that you like, but then you meet somebody with that name and they're not very nice. And suddenly you don't like that name anymore, do you? <laughs> There may be a name that you didn't like. You thought it was an ugly name, but then you met somebody that had that name and they were kind to you and they befriended you. And all of a sudden, that name sort of rings a bell with you, doesn't it? You see, a name is very important because it encapsulates the person. And in this culture, even more so, from the very outset, you would be named something that the parents thought would become a defining trait of your life. And in this instance, it was unique because the first boy that came out of the birth canal was red and hairy, the Bible says. He was born a man. <laughs> he was born a beast. <laughs> he was red and hairy, so much so that they named him Esau. And the Hebrew word Esau means hairy. <laughs> well, that name actually came to define something of Esau's personality. Esau grew up to be a big strapping young man, a hairy man, a muscular man, a man who went out and hunted and became a trophy hunter. A man who thrilled his father because he was macho. He was masculine. He was the modern day football player equivalent, right? He was a big beefy brawny guy. And his dad said, that's my boy. <laughs> well, Jacob was a little different than that. The Bible says he had smooth skin. He came out and he reached out before he was fully even out of the birth canal and he grabbed the heel of his older, by a few moments, brother. <laughs> and they named him heel grabber. Jacob, heel grabber. 
Little did they know that that name was going to become a definitive characteristic of this boy's nature. He was the heel grabber, the one who came from behind, the one who strategized. Yes, they were blessed with two sons, born just moments apart. But you've got to understand that in that cultural setting, to be the firstborn was a big deal. So those very few moments separating their birth actually created a chasm between them because the oldest was the one who would inherit the birthright. Now, what does the birthright mean? The birthright means that that eldest son has judicial, legally recognized authority over the rest of his family. That means he's the boss man. He makes the decisions for the clan. And so that's a pretty prestigious position to be the firstborn. It also meant in this particular family that he would be the heir to the blessings of God. You see, God had made Abraham some promises. He said, out of you, I will arise a great nation. All of the people of the world will be blessed by your offspring. He said they will be numbered as the sands of the sea. And he said, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. This blessing was to pass through the paternal line. And Esau, by nature, by having been born a few moments early, was legally, culturally at least, supposed to inherit that blessing and that birthright. But God gives us a foreshadowing, a prophecy in fact, that the elder will serve the younger. Now, Jacob doesn't know this. Jacob assumes that by an accident in the birth canal, by a happenstance, by just a few miserable little moments, Esau gets all the benefits and all the blessings. Well, that's kind of a bummer for Jacob, isn't it? Just a few moments, just the positioning in the womb causes Esau to inherit the birthright, to inherit a double portion of his father's inheritance, to inherit the blessing. He gets to be the big dog. And Jacob, the smooth-skinned mama's boy, is destined to live a life in his shadow. That's kind of rough, isn't it? Not to mention the fact that Esau's more hairy, more brawny, more macho, more manly. He's the big-time hunter. He's the one that his dad's proud of. And Jacob's the one that stays home close to mama and cooks in the kitchen. He's the smooth-skinned one. He's the less brawny one, the less manly one. No doubt that began to eat at Jacob's mind. This is exacerbated by the fact that apparently Esau was maybe not quite as smart as Jacob. The Bible calls Esau a profane man. Now that does not mean that Esau had a filthy mouth. He may have, but that's not what the Bible is saying when it calls him a profane man. When the Bible calls Esau a profane man, if you study the root of that word, what it actually means is that you have a disregard for value or sacred things. It means that you take something of value and you sort of root it around in the dirt. It would be like me 
taking the wheel of a pristinely restored 57 Chevy. How many of you'd like to own a pristinely restored 57 Chevy? I sure would. Probably the most beautiful car that was ever made. That means I go out and buy a 57 Chevy and I get behind the wheel and I take that car outside of town, out on the dirt roads, out into the woods and start mudding with it. Now you Indiana boys know what mudding is all about. How many of you know what mudding is all about? Yeah. <laughs> there are vehicles that are designed for mudding, but not a 57 Chevy. You don't take a 57 Chevy in the woods where it's going to get covered with mud and rocks are going to put dents in it and branches are going to scrape it and it's going to bottom out going over a root or a rock somewhere. No, you wouldn't do that. That would be profane. That would be to take something of value and to use it for something far less than its intended purpose. That's the kind of guy that Esau was, according to the scripture. Now, if your older brother is going to be your boss and he's going to be the head of the family and he's going to call the shots and he's going to make decisions about how the money gets spent and where the flocks get fed and how, who we're going to hire and who we're going to fire and all of this kind of stuff, it would be a matter of concern if he is a profane man, wouldn't it? He's probably not going to make the best of decisions. And so no doubt Jacob is a little concerned about this and that just feeds his envy. That in this accident of birth, just separated by a few moments, he's got to serve his big, beefy, brawny, slightly dumb older brother. <laughs> no doubt that ate at his soul. And Jacob the strategist, Jacob, the smart guy, Jacob, the conniver, begins to formulate a plan. One day, Esau comes in from hunting. Jacob knows how to cook. His mom has taught him well, and he has made what they call a mess of red pottage. It's probably some kind of stew, and uh, how many of you like beef stew or something like that when that's cooking in the kitchen and that aroma is wafting throughout the house and you walk in the door and you've come in from a hard day's work and you're starving hungry. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Katie bar the door, right? I want to get to that food. <laughs> well, that's the way Esau felt. Esau comes in from the field and he's famished. He probably hasn't eaten all day. And Esau... You know, who knows, maybe he had low blood sugar. Maybe he actually was at the point of passing out or even dying. They didn't know the medical science behind these things in those days. I don't know. Was he actually about to die or was he just being dramatic? I don't know. He might have been. <laughs> Be that as it may, he came in the tent and he says, I'm famished. And he says, give me some of your stew. And Jacob sees his brother in a weakened condition Jacob senses a moment of vulnerability and Jacob, the heel grabber, comes from behind and he reaches out to take what he thinks really should be his. After all, I'm the smart guy here. He's the big, beefy, brawny doofus who's going to destroy our family if he ever gets to be in charge. I actually need to lead this family. And so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And he comes from behind and he says, okay, 
I'll give you some of my stew. But you've got to give me your birthright. Esau's a profane man. He's probably used to settling disputes with his fists. He's hungry. And he says to himself, you know what? What good is my birthright if I die right here? So I'm going to eat and I'll settle up with Jacob later. And so he says, okay, you can have my birthright. Just let me ask some of that stew. <coughs> Jacob smiles. He says, here you are, my brother. <laughs> Knowing exactly what he has just done. Now, Jacob's not done yet. And in fact, Jacob's mama gets in on the action. No doubt Jacob's mother, or yes, Jacob's mother is concerned as well because she knows that her son doesn't make good decisions. The Bible tells us that. She's concerned about her own welfare. Her husband's getting up in years. She's probably worried about the fact that big brawny doofus Esau is going to be the one that's in charge of the family. And she favors Jacob anyway, so she would love nothing more than to have Jacob be the one in charge. And so she begins to conspire with Jacob to steal not only the birthright, but the blessing as well. They know that Isaac's time is limited. They know that Esau is going out to hunt and he's going to bring back a prize and he's going to cook it just like his father loves it. And he's going to take it into him and he's going to receive the blessing. Probably there's been some sort of a family meeting that's taken place and they know what's about to happen. And so Rebecca says to Jacob, we've got to act quickly. I'm going to cook this meat exactly like your father loves it. And I'm going to give you some of Esau's clothing that smells like the fields. And, you know, we've got to do something about that smooth skin because, you know, your brother's a hairy beast. And so they take some goat skin and they wrap goats. He must have been quite a dude, you know. <laughs> if it takes goat skin, the fool is fine. <laughs> they wrap his arms in, in goat skin. I don't think I'd want to be that hairy. But anyhow. <laughs> They wrap his arms in goatskin and Rebecca sends Jacob, the conniving, strategizing heel grabber into the chamber where his aging, ailing father sits. Now, Isaac's eyesight is gone. He's relying on his other senses. But truth be told, his mind is probably weakened as well. And they're taking advantage of this elderly man. They walk into the room. He walks into the room and uh, Isaac says, who is it? And he says, it's your son Esau. And Isaac says, that's strange. The voice sounds like Jacob. He says, come nearer my son. And he comes nearer <coughs> and he begins to sniff his clothing and he begins to feel his arms. He says, ah, but the smell and the feel is of my son Esau. And the act of deception was complete. He says, place your hand under my thigh, which was the tradition of oath swearing in those days. And Isaac proceeds to pour out a lavish blessing from God upon his younger son. Now, it's mission accomplished, right? Well, 
I'm not sure that Jacob and Rebekah fully thought this thing through because eventually Esau's going to come home and eventually there's going to be a reckoning, right? Maybe they thought that Isaac was so fragile, fragile that he would pass away before Esau got back. Or maybe they thought Esau was going to have another low blood sugar attack and they weren't going to feed him and he was going to die. I don't know. <laughs> but surely they must have had some contingency plan. Because Esau comes back in the tent and he's bringing the, the meat that he's cooked for his father. And he says, Father, I'm here for your blessing. And his father cries out and says, oh, what have they done to me? He says, you're my son Esau. And Esau says, Father, what's going on? And he says, your younger brother has stolen your blessing. Of course, Esau's in a rage and he comes storming out of the tent. And apparently, Rebekah and Jacob had thought this through. They did have a strategy in place. And so Rebekah sent Jacob to her brother's household many miles from their home. Laban. Laban was her brother. Laban had a big family of his own. Laban will give you work, she said. You go live with Laban and work for Laban. And so off Jacob goes. Travels days. He finally arrives. And he sees something he didn't expect. He sees that his uncle has two beautiful daughters. <laughs> Now, we could make all manner of jokes about people marrying their cousins. I know they don't do it in Indiana. And we won't talk about the states where they do. <laughs> but in those days, there were a lot less people on the face of the earth, and it was okay to marry your cousin. It's not now, just in case you don't know that. It is not cool. Don't do it. <laughs> But as Jacob entered into the camp, he saw this girl that took his breath away. She had beautiful brown eyes. Her name was Rachel. And Jacob said, I want to marry that girl. He got to know Laban. And before long, Laban embraced him, entered him into his household. And he said, Laban, I want to marry Rachel. And Laban said, okay, I think something can be arranged, but I need to scrutinize you for a little while. And so how about you work for me for seven years, and then I'll give you Rachel's hand in marriage. Well, that was no doubt a tough pill for him to swallow, but don't forget, Jacob is the strategist. Jacob's not profane like Esau. Jacob's not an instant gratification kind of guy. He's a guy that plans ahead. And so he says, okay, I'll work for you for seven years. And that's exactly what he does. And at the end of that seven years, finally the big day arrives. They're going to have the wedding. The bride is concealed and veiled as was the custom of that time. They go through the ceremony. They have their first night of their honeymoon. The sun rises on the next troubled day <laughs> because, oh my goodness, Jacob realizes that he's got the wrong gal. <laughs> Those eyes that flutter open the next morning ain't brown, they're blue, <laughs> and that's a problem. <laughs> 
that is a very, very big problem. Oh my, I can't even imagine. <laughs> Don't want to imagine. But suffice it to say, Jacob was not a happy king. What Jacob didn't realize is that he, the heel grabber, he, the deceiver, had met his match in his uncle Laban. And he goes back to him and he says, what have you done to me? You've given me Leah instead of Rachel. And what does Laban say? He says, well, you know, in our country, in our territory, in our region, we have a cultural custom that the oldest daughter has to get married first. Boy, thank God that custom went by the wayside. <laughs> How'd you have li like to have had to marry your wife's older sister before you could marry her? Boy, that would be a bum deal, wouldn't it? <laughs> Some of you are shaking your heads too earnestly. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. <laughs> no, thank God we don't have that custom anymore. Thank God that the scripture ruled out polygamy, right? <laughs> but you know, Laban had Jacob over a barrel. Because Laban still possessed what Jacob wanted more than anything else in the world, and that was Rachel. And so, as angry as he must have been, as disgusted as he must have been, ultimately, Jacob had to say, okay, I will work another seven years. And that's exactly what he did. And finally, he was able to marry the love of his life. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, literally, <laughs> Jacob had been working behind the scenes. He had been strategizing, and somehow... <laughs> His flocks had done better than Laban's. There developed a conflict. They ended up deciding that they were going to have to draw some lines. And Jacob said, okay, I'll take all the speckled ones. And so he took all the speckled ones. But then the speckled ones started to multiply. He was playing around with the water supply and doing some interesting things. Who knows what all the heel grabber was up to. But suffice it to say, it made Laban angry. And so Laban switched on him. And they had to switch livestock. But then, guess what? Jacob was able to pull it off once again. And his herds and his flocks began to multiply. And there's tension that develops between he and Laban. And finally, it gets to be a little uncomfortable. And Jacob decides, hey, when things got a little too tough to handle back at home, I took off and I've done okay. So I think I can do it again. And he decides to sneak away from his father-in-law Laban. And he gathers up his wives, and by now he has children and his many possessions. And they've already created a little bit of distance because they needed enough forage land for their livestock and their herds. And so he slips away in the night. And it's a little while before Laban figures this out. But finally Laban figures it out, and he is not a happy camper. After all, his daughters and grandchildren are with that entourage. And so he begins to pursue him. He's particularly angry because one of the wives has stolen his household idols and he wants those back. And so he pursues Jacob and finally he catches up with him. And Jacob says, I don't owe you a thing. I worked for you 14 years and you did nothing but do me dirty. You tricked me. <laughs> Maybe a case of the pot calling the kettle black, right? <laughs> one deceiver meets another. Long story short, they end up reconciling their differences and Jacob goes on his way. And you know, God begins to speak to Jacob and God says, it's time to go home. 
God gives Jacob visions along the way. And Jacob is confirmed in his mission that it's time to go home. But the closer he gets to home, the more concerned he becomes. Because he realizes that his older brother is probably not going to be very happy with him. And so he begins to strategize. That's what Jacob does, right? Jacob is the strategist. And he begins to separate out animals and prepare peace offerings to send ahead. And he sends out some scouts. And they go ahead and they scout out the land and they want to see what frame of mind Esau is in. And they come back to Jacob and the news is not good. They say, Jacob, your brother Esau has heard that you're coming. And he's on his way to meet you, and it ain't with a welcoming party. It's with 400 soldiers. And all of a sudden, Jacob's chickens come home to roost. All of a sudden, Jacob realizes that all of his deceptions, all of his heel grabbing, all of his conniving to come from behind and come out on top is finally coming back to bite him. And it may cost he and his wives and his children their lives. Jacob frantically begins going back into strategist mode and he starts dividing up his household and he sends Leah and her children out ahead and then he keeps Rachel and her children back behind and he sends his flocks this way and his, his men and women of his household that way and he starts dividing up his family so that Esau can't come and just kill them all at once. And the night before they are to have their meeting, Jacob spends alone. But you know what? He quickly found that he was not alone. A stranger came. A stranger that he was to discover was in fact none other than the God of Abraham and of Isaac. The God that he had failed to rely upon. The God whose principles he had failed to follow had come. He had pursued him. Oh, I love that, don't you? <laughs> because you see, God knew that there was potential in Jacob. And God said, I'm going to take on human form. This is actually an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And he said, I'm going to take on human form and I'm going to go down there and meet Jacob. Yes, his chickens have come home to roost. Yes, he's all alone tonight. And I'm going to go down there and I'm going to confront him. Thank God for that great heart of compassion that he has that pursues us that comes to where we are. Oh, I love that old song that Squire Parsons wrote so many years ago. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. Hallelujah. Yes, Jacob is frantically strategizing and he's doing his dead level best to try to work out everything to minimize the damage that was resulting from the consequences of his own deceptions and his own bad decisions and his own ethical lapses. And in the midst of that, in his moment of solitude, in his moment of fear, God steps into the picture. Amen. <laughs> I love that. I want to draw out just a few points very quickly about what God did 
in Jacob's world that night. First of all, he knew him. He knew him. God knew that Jacob was the heel grabber. He knew that before he was ever formed in the womb. God knew that Jacob had been deceitful. God knew that Jacob had played tricks on people. God knew that Jacob had been self-centered and dishonest. God knew that Jacob deserved everything he was getting. God knew that when Jacob finally started to face the consequences of his decisions, he turned tail and run, and then he turned tail and ran again. God knew that. God knew Jacob. God knew his nature. God knew right where he was. God knew him. God drew him. Oh, thank God that he's in the business of drawing you and I to him. Perverse though we be, carnal though we be, selfish though we be, dishonest though we be, wicked though we be, he knows us and yet he draws us. Oh, friends, we don't get any credit for coming to Christ. The Bible says no man comes unless we are drawn of his spirit. But I'm so thankful for that blessed Holy Spirit that is today, tonight, even now, knocking at the door of your heart and saying, if any man will open the door, I will come in and I will fellowship. I'll come in and take up residence. Hallelujah. Thank God that that's the kind of God we serve. He knew him and he drew him. He scared him. He scared him. And thank God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the scripture says. You know, sometimes God has to just pull back the protections and just let life tumble out upon us. Let us face those unpleasant, ugly consequences of our own poor decisions. Sometimes God just has to let light beat on us for a little bit so that we'll come to a place where we recognize that we're desperately in need of a Savior. Amen? Amen. And that's exactly what God let happen to Jacob. He scared him. He let his chickens come home to roost. He let him know that his brother was on his way with 400 soldiers and probably was coming to have his hide. He scared him. And then God did something unusual. He dared him. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? You know, sometimes our Heavenly Father acts a little bit earthy. Now that sounds like a contradiction of terms, doesn't it? Sometimes God gets earthy. That's what the incarnation was all about, friends. <laughs> you know, we see these beautiful pictures, some of them painted in Scripture itself, of God the Father seated upon the throne of the universe with His train filling the temple and angels and archangels flying and dancing and singing in His presence, covering their faces with their wings and singing, Holy, 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 heaven and earth is full of Your glory. Oh, thank God for the majesty of the King of kings and Lord of lords. But you know what? That same God will enwrap himself in human form and come down and put on work boots and get down in the muck and the mire with us so that he can save our souls. Hallelujah. <laughs> Jesus came into the womb of a virgin peasant girl. Jesus 
came through that earthly birth canal with all of the unpleasantness associated with that. Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feed trough. Yes, it was a feed trough. We think manger. We think, oh, that cute little golden manger in our manger scene. No, it was a feed trough. It's where animals came and snorted and snarled and spit all over that food. That's what it was. It wasn't pleasant. Sometimes God gets earthy so that he can save our souls, so that he can transform us and do a work of grace in us that will change our very nature. Oh, I'm so thankful. <laughs> I'm so thankful for the God that knew him and drew him and scared him and dared him. He said, come on, Jacob, bring it on. Let's wrestle. <laughs> And somewhere in the darkness of that night, it began to dawn on Jacob that this was no ordinary stranger. He began to realize that this was God himself. <laughs> yes, God strained him. God wrestled with him. Jacob began to realize that this was God and he said, oh, bless me. Well, that was a logical request, wasn't it? If you're about to die at the hand of your angry older brother who has 400 soldiers to back him up, yeah, that's a pretty smart thing to say. Oh, God, please bless me. <laughs> Protect me. Save my hide. <laughs> but you know, God wanted to do something far deeper than just save Jacob's hide. That's why he strained him. He wrestled with him. He wrestled with him the whole night long. I'm so thankful for the patience of God, aren't you? You know, that old nature inside of us dies hard. There's a struggle involved. Because what it means is I surrender control. And you know, that's harder than ever for a person like Jacob. Because he's a guy that has become accustomed to winning his battles with his brain. He's the guy who's been accustomed to strategizing. He's the guy who's been accustomed to coming from behind and getting what he wants. And then if things get too difficult, off he goes. Running from his problems to save his neck. Oh yeah, he's been to this rodeo before. <laughs> but now things are getting just a little more uncomfortable than in the past. And he's asking God to bless him. And God's wrestling with him. God's wrestling with him. And God asks him his name. Yes, he strained him. And then also, God maimed him. God maimed him. The scripture says he touched him in the hollow of his thigh. That's the inner, upper portion of his thigh. Now, the Hebrew word used there behind the English word touched actually means more than just a touch. It means a blow. Now, if you're a wrestler, that's a cheap shot, isn't it? You give somebody a swift blow on the inner thigh, that's a cheap shot. But you know, God wasn't in a test of strength with Jacob. What God was doing when he touched his inner thigh was he said, Jacob, there'll be no more running. 
It's time to confront your nature. It's time for you to face up to the fact of who you are. The decisions that you've made. Yeah, you've tried to mend the fences. You tried to mend the fences with Laban. Now you're trying to mend the fences with Esau. And you are headed back home and that's a good thing. But I want to do more than just mend your fences. I want to change your nature. I want to change who you are from the inside. Jacob, there's not going to be any more running. It's time. It's time for you to confront your name. Jacob, what is your name? For Jacob to admit what his name was, was for him to admit his nature. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the deceiver. I'm the conniver. I'm the selfish one that has tried to orchestrate my own life and has failed so miserably. Finally, <laughs> Jacob reaches that point. He's been wrestling with God and he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And God says, what is your name? And finally, there bursts forth from Jacob that all-important admission. He says, I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the selfish one. I'm the dishonest one. <laughs> you know what? God said, I'll take that. <laughs> and son, your name is going to be changed. <laughs> Aren't you thankful for a God who can change your name? <laughs> Just like Abraham used to be Abram, but when God transformed him, he turned him into Abraham. <laughs> Just like Simon used to be, or Peter used to be Simon, but then God transformed his nature and changed his name to Peter, and he said, on this rock I'll build my church. Just like Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the Christians, God changed his nature and changed his name to Paul. He said, Jacob, I'm going to change your name. You are now going to be known as Israel. And you know what Israel means? Israel means prince. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? He went from the conniving, dishonest heel grabber to being the prince. Finally, the prophecy that was given by the midwife back at his birth, as the little lady said, the younger will serve the elder. That prophecy from God is now coming true. Now Jacob is becoming what God wants him to be. What is a prince? A prince is a son. A prince has the same DNA, the same nature as his father. The New Testament says it this way. God wants to make us a partaker of his divine nature. Oh, that doesn't mean we're going to be... A heavenly being like God who can speak and worlds come into existence. No, maybe it's something like this. You can take a drop of water out of the Atlantic Ocean and you can put it on the slide of a microscope. And if you scrutinize it and you start writing down all the characteristics of that drop of water and then you compare it. If somehow we could gather up the Atlantic Ocean and put it under a giant microscope and write down all the 
characteristics and contents of that Atlantic Ocean, you would find that they're made out of the same stuff. <laughs> no, that drop of water can't sail the ships. No, that drop of water can't provide a home for the great blue whale. No, that drop of water can't stir up a hurricane like the Atlantic Ocean can, and we hope it doesn't. But, <laughs> but they're made out of the same stuff. Hallelujah. We can become a partaker of his divine nature. And that's what God was saying to Jacob. He said, no longer are you known as the heel grabber. You are the prince. You are my son. What is a prince? A prince is an heir. He's an heir to the authority. He's an heir to the wealth and the riches of the storehouse of his father. He's an heir to the blessings of the kingdom. Oh, hallelujah. God said, when you are willing to come to the point of saying your name, of admitting who you are, and laying your case out before me, I then can do a transformative work that will change your very nature and alter who you are at the very core of your being. Hallelujah. <laughs> he renamed him. He's now the prince. Our scripture passage says that the morning broke and the sun arose on a brand new man. <laughs> Hallelujah. Israel. <laughs> Jacob, now Israel, goes on to become the heir to those promises, to those blessings. And he takes his place in the hall of the patriarchs because he let God change his nature. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. God knew him. God drew him. God scared him. God dared him. God strained him. God <laughs> maimed him. But finally, God renamed him. Hallelujah. He's the prince. <laughs> well, that was many thousands of years ago. That's a story from eons ago. How does that relate to me? Let me tell you how it relates to you, my friends. The same God that wrapped himself in human flesh and got down in the dirt and dust and wrestled with Jacob is standing at your doorstep tonight, too. Oh, you may have committed sins, and in fact, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You may have confessed those sins. You may have come to Christ and said, oh, Lord, forgive my sins. The blood of Jesus may have covered over those sins, but I've got news for you tonight, young people. If you haven't confronted your nature, then you're not ready to be a prince in the kingdom. But if you're willing to confess if you're willing to let God wrestle you down and expose that nature that is within you, and it's within every one of us, minus the grace of God. We're all born with it, friends. We're born with that bent toward sin. We're born with that something within us that rises up and says, I'll do what I want to do. If you're not willing to confront that nature, ultimately, guys and girls, you will not succeed spiritually. But I'm so happy to tell you that there's a remedy Amen. for that nature. God has a solution. How do you know? Because I can testify to it. I've been there. I understand that struggle. 
For years and years, I struggled and struggled up and down, in and out, trying to serve God, confessing, going to the altar at camp meeting, going to the altar at revival, going to the altar so many times it was embarrassing, making so many promises that I finally didn't believe myself anymore. And finally, God brought me to a point where I realized that there was something fundamental in my nature that had to change. Oh, I'll never forget that time in my life. It was a tough time. I had a good friend. I was in college. And the friend who later became my brother-in-law, Mark, he and I both were struggling with this issue of carnality. And we both banded together. We entered into an accountability relationship. And let me just stop and say accountability is good. It's healthy. It exposes your need. But there are limits to what accountability can do. Accountability will not fix you. Accountability will make you aware of your need to be fixed. <laughs> but only God can fix you, my friends. Only God's grace can change your nature. And my buddy Mark and I, we began meeting together. We began confessing our faults together, confessing our failures together. We began reading books. We began praying. We began fasting. We began talking to some of our spiritual heroes, sitting down with them and, and asking them to counsel us and to pray with us. We took it very seriously. And it was over a period of weeks that stretched into months. And we were still seeking and still seeking and struggling and struggling. And I'll never forget that day when I got that phone call from my buddy Mark. And on the other end of the line was a happy, happy guy. And he said, Paul, God has done the work. I have received the witness of the Spirit. He has cleansed my heart from all sin. Cleansed my nature. Filled me with the fullness of the Spirit. And I said a very half-hearted hallelujah. <laughs> Up until that point, I had never felt so alone in my life. Because I knew that God had not done the work in my heart. I knew that I had not placed myself fully on the altar and been transformed by the renewing of my mind so that I could prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. I knew I was still battling the carnal nature. And I'll never forget... For the next couple days, I just went down into depression and I was struggling and I knew I was on the verge of failure yet again. And I remember getting ready to go to sleep one night and the Lord spoke to me and he said, don't put your head on your pillow until you have the assurance. And I have to tell you, I was pretty excited by that because I said, oh, Lord, is tonight the night? <laughs> It's tonight the night. I jumped up. I threw on some clothes. I got in my car and I went down to the college administration building. I like to walk when I pray. There was a long hallway, a long wide hallway up the middle of the Heron Center. And I sneaked in. I knew how to get in without a key. That was probably bad. But anyhow, I did. <laughs> and I started pacing up and down that hallway. And I was praying like a house of fire. If you could have been a fly on the wall and heard my prayer, you probably would have been impressed. <laughs> I made all sorts of promises. I confessed everything I could confess. I consecrated everything I knew to consecrate. I even made some promises that I knew I couldn't keep. <laughs> Truth be told, I knew I couldn't keep any of them. And I prayed myself slap out of gas. I cried till I didn't have any tears left. I'd confessed everything. I'd promised everything. I'd consecrated everything. And nothing had happened. 
And I remember finally going and sitting down on the steps, my head in my hands. And I was at the end of my rope. And friends, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating there. I was at the point of make or break. If God hadn't done something for me then and there, I could have lost my faith at that point. Because I had just done everything I knew to do. And finally, God came to me in a still small voice. And he said, son, you're trying to live your whole life in a moment. And you can't do that. You don't have the strength to keep those promises. You've proven to me and proven to yourself and proven to everyone else that you're a proven failure. And I said, yes, Lord, that's right. He said, son, all you possess is this moment. You give me this moment and then you trust me for the future. And I'll do a work of grace in your heart. And I jumped up from those steps and I said, yes, 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 a thousand times yes. Lord, that's the cry of my heart. And I want to tell you something, friends. God did something in my heart that day I've never gotten away from. No, I didn't have very many tears left to cry. And I didn't really even run back and forth or wave a hanky. I didn't do any of that. I just said, oh, God, thank you. You have done the work. And I walked out of the administration building, and as I was walking toward my car, the night guard came up. He looked a little suspicious, and he was looking at me. And I said, Ron, I want to tell you something. God just did a work in my heart of entire sanctification. And right then, the waterworks started, and I found my tears. And Ron was looking at me even more strangely. He said, well, uh, well, well thank the Lord. <laughs> But I went home that night and I laid my head on my pillow in peace. Oh, the peace and the assurance that I had. But you know what? I found out. I found out that one work of grace that God does for you in one moment won't just carry you so that you can coast the rest of your life. I found out that you have to keep consecrating. Yes. I found out that that's just the starting point and you'll face new tests and new trials and there'll be other times when you'll wrestle with God and God will wrestle you down and he'll say, is it still on the altar? <laughs> Are you still consecrated? Are you still committed? Yes. Folks, I faced one of those moments very recently. When God took my sweet wife home to be home with him. God led me down a path answering my questions, and I can't praise him enough. But I'll tell you, about a week after that accident, God asked me the hardest thing he's ever asked in my life. God spoke to me, and he said, Paul, can you thank me for taking Jacinda? And under God, with all the honesty I can muster, I was not being rebellious. I said, no, Lord, I can't do that. I wasn't rebelling. I was just being gut-wrenchingly honest. And God kept coming back to me. Can you thank me? And I began to praise God. You know, you know kind of like a little kid does? When you ask them to do something that they really don't want to do, and they'll distract you, they'll give you a picture that they've drawn, they'll say, I love you, they'll give you a kiss.
trying to distract you from what you're asking them to do. I'm not trying to be funny because it wasn't a bit funny in that moment. But just in that childlike sense, I just started praising God and thanking God for everything I could think of. I said, oh God, thank you for salvation. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness from sins. Thank you for your presence. And God kept coming back to me and he said, but can you thank me for taking Jacinda? And I would go off on another praise tangent. And when I did, God's presence came near. Tears rolled down my face. I felt God right beside me. But he kept bringing me back. Can you thank me? Ladies and gentlemen, that was my Mount Moriah. Now, I'm not trying to pretend that it's on the scale of Abraham offering Isaac. But in my little world, it was. She was already gone and I couldn't bring her back. But to be able to say those words, thank you for taking the love of my life. Thank you for taking the very center of my hopes and dreams. Thank you for taking the thing that I lived for. I can't explain to you why that was so impossible, but it was. And finally, I reached a point where in my heart I said, Lord, help me. And I began to say those words. I said, Lord, thank you for taking Jacinda when and how you did. You took her gently. You took her instantly. She knew no pain. She knew no fear. She knew no suffering. She was asleep. And she woke up in heaven. And you're touching thousands of people through this. And I cannot describe to you the peace that flooded my soul when I said those words. From the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, just like the songwriter says, peace like a river. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah. When you said that final yes, and your all is on the altar, and his spirit bears witness with your spirit. That all is surrendered. There's nothing between my soul and the Savior. My all is on the altar. Fully surrendered. Hallelujah. I just want to tell you guys and girls. There is nothing in the world that compares to that. That peace is deep in my soul to this very night. Because guess what? It's still all on the altar. And I thank God for that. It's not because I'm some spiritual hero. I promise you that. I didn't have the grace to do that. I didn't have the strength to do that. And I was honest with God. And I said, no, Lord, I can't thank you for that. But you know what? He came down and he walked with me. And he wrestled with me for an hour. And finally, he gave me the grace that I needed to say, yes, Lord. To say that final yes. And he gave me a peace that passes all understanding. A peace that continues with me to this very evening. Hallelujah. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. Folks, you can have peace in your soul. Your all can be on the altar. You can have the witness of the Spirit that He has filled you with all of His fullness. That He has cleansed you from inbred sin. That you are a child of God filled with His Spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, God grant. 
that he would give us that peace tonight. Shall we stand?